Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, the sound you hear is a buzzsaw ripping through a painting of George Washington chopping down cherry trees. It's time for Professor Buzzkill, busting myths and taking names. Hello, Buzzkillers. It's the professor here. You know, one of the best things I've gotten out of doing this show is learning so much more about the history of my own country, the United States, than I ever did did before. As many of you know, my research specialty is 19th century British history, and I worked in that field for a long time before I saw the light and went into show business. This show, this episode, is going to teach me even more. Today, we're looking at the dramatic combination of advancing industrialization, the dirty business of coal mining, both from the miner's side and the operator's side, the owner's side, and specifically, we're going to talk about what happened when bad industrial relations, bigoted immigrant relations, and distrust between workers and bosses ignited violence, murder, undercover police work, and crime and punishment in the late 19th century coal fields of industrial America. We're here with Dr. Perry Blatz, who's an expert on 19th century industrialization in the United States and labor relations, and specifically wrote a very important and good book on democratic miners in northeastern Pennsylvania in the 19th century. And this is an excellent in, if you will, to talking about one of the most famous, one of the most colorful incidents, and certainly one of the most mythologized incidents and in groups in U.S. history in the 19th century, and that is, of course, the Molly Maguires. They've had a, a uh, they've had a Hollywood film made about them. The books are always coming out, Professor. How how is it that a group of, you know, underground miners turn into such a famous gang, if you will? I don't mean gang in the in the in the, in the famous group, if you will. Yeah. Well, I think the main thing that made them famous were the crimes of which they were accused and convicted in the uh, uh, 1870s, the latter half of the 1870s, leading to a day known in northeastern Pennsylvania uh, still today to some extent, I'm sure, as the Day of the Rope, where 10 
were executed. Ten more were executed at different times, but ten were executed in one day. So these crimes had a great deal of notoriety at the time, and of course they affected so many people, and the punishments mm-hmm. were so vigorously disputed. Uh, and there, of course, were ethnic dimensions, and uh, these things really became very famous because of, I think, uh, you know, really the really the punishments and the combination of crime with a rapidly industrializing area, one that was uh, trying to organize labor unions, mm-hmm. and uh, it was also one of the uh, greatest areas of corporate and industrial growth in the late 19th century, with the um, the growth of the Reading Railroad, which owned most of the coal mines, and of course the Reading Railroad is around anymore, but there, I'm sure there are uh, trains running on uh, its tracks right. uh, as we speak. And of course, this coal is f- is fueling this, this second half of the Industrial Revolution oh, sure. and, 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 and running steel plants and all sorts oh, of other things, oh, providing oh, the energy for all the, all the, almost all the Oh, sure, because this is anthracite or hard coal in right. that part of the United States, uh, as opposed to bituminous soft coal, which is a little, uh, a good bit more common really around the United States and around mm-hmm. the world, and of course Great Britain and lots of other places. Uh, Great Britain recently uh, made plans to close down its last deep mine. Uh, That's right. So uh, uh, all this uh, has um, has connections to the current day, but uh, northeastern Pennsylvania is really the world's great deposit of anthracite or hard coal. Its main use at that time and well into the 20th century was as a home heating fuel. And I think it's still popular in a few places where mm-hmm. where folks, I know people were going back to in the 60s of having uh, a coal-fired furnace, and of course the hard anthracite coal uh, burns cleaner. And so that was its its claim to fame, and it was a good industrial fuel, railroad fuel, but also especially a home heating fuel for the growing cities of the Northeast, New York, New England, Buffalo, New York, Philadelphia, that whole area uh, was fueled by the anthracite coal of northeastern Pennsylvania, everywhere from Scranton and a little bit north of there down through Hazleton, Pottsville, pretty much along Interstate 81, mm-hmm. for those of our listeners who know that road, almost to Harrisburg. Uh, well, you well, get about 30 miles south. You get thirty miles northeast of Harrisburg, and you'll start seeing remnants off in the big coal piles of hmm. the anthracite coal industry, and it ranges for, I'd say, about 100, 100 110 miles along Interstate 81 from the southwest, not too far from Harrisburg, all the way up past Granton. Wow. And so naturally then, if you will, people flock to this region to get good coal mining jobs, or at least coal mining jobs because this this – Type of coal has a premium to it. Well, and this was one of the great, uh, great industrial growth areas of the uh, United States as early as the 1820s, and especially right. from the 1830s on. You had uh, large numbers of um, immigrants, largely beginning with uh, Englishmen mm-hmm. and Welshmen. Uh, a good many of whom had some kind of coal mining experience from the old country. And of course, uh, and here's where the Molly Maguires uh, start to come into play, or their story begins, with the uh, potato famine in Ireland in the 1840s. Right. There's, there's massive Irish immigration, and uh, uh, of course that was an immigration largely of very, very poor people mm-hmm. who sort of had to find the best work they could. And uh, it was easy to get a train out of New York City or Philadelphia after you took the boat over, and you could get hired in the rapidly expanding anthracite coal mines of northeastern Pennsylvania. And tens of thousands of, uh, of Irishmen, along with their uh, families, uh, came there from the 1840s on. So it's not surprising, then, that 
given these Welsh miners and these English miners and Irish laborers flock to this region for different reasons, but they flock to this region, and th- therefore m- most depictions and ex- explanations of the of the of the labor force and the bosses and all those things almost always add, oh, the Irish miners mm-hmm. or the Welsh coal oh, sure. uh, uh, the managers sure. or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, many never the- say you know just the ordinary. He's the he's the he's the mine manager. He's oh, the Welsh mine manager. Oh, oh, the ethnic identification was uh, um, was crucial at the beginning. Uh, in the research I did in that area, and that goes uh, oh <laughs> back uh, about 35 years or so, but ethnic identification, of course, is still very strong in mm-hmm. that area, as they are in lots of places in the uh, northeast and midwestern United States. And so that ethnic identification was very important, and of course, the divisions between those groups that uh, we certainly could find over in the British Isles, we find right. once again when these groups are in this area, and of course one of the easy sources of division and possible conflict was that uh, the English and Welsh tended to have the higher positions in this industry, right. largely because they had more experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there were some Irishmen who had spent some time in, in Britain or Wales working in some mines there before they came over, but even there they would have had less experience than the English, Welsh. There were also Cornish miners, right. uh, a lot of mining done in the British Isles. And so the ethnic difference was there, and but the they, Irish but, but tended in to Ireland, be in the bottom. Well, in Ireland, there are there weren't there's not as much coal as the. the That's w- correct. Welsh I mean, Wales is full of it, in yes, northeast and northeast England, northwest England is full of it. Yes, and so Irish immigrants would would often first go, and some of the uh, the labor union leaders had this mm-hmm. experience where they would first go uh, to Britain or Wales. And do a little work in mining and then come over to northeastern Pennsylvania or, of course, to other places in the United States of mine. But this mm-hmm. Molly Maguire's phenomenon and all the controversy over it and the crimes associated with it and the labor organizing that also occurred um, uh, was a northeastern Pennsylvania phenomenon. Right. Okay. Well, let's let's set the background for the buzzkillers. What was the coal mining industry in northeastern Pennsylvania like? Now we talk about them come, people coming over in the 1840s and and stuff, but things really start accelerate after the Civil War, don't they? So what's going on? What, what's it like to be a miner, even to be a mine owner or mine manager in the 1860s and 70s? Well, uh, it's a rapidly growing industry, but also a very volatile industry. The American economy has uh, ups and downs today's. It had more volatile ups and downs in that era, right? Uh, and so. It was highly competitive for the coal operators, even though the industry is growing. Uh, there was a trend toward needing more capital to build more mines. And, of course, uh, as capital organized, you see the rise of industrial corporations, railroad companies like the Reading Railroad taking mm-hmm. over more and more of the coal mines, controlling uh, such independent operators as were there as far as how they could ship their product and so on. So that was terribly competitive. And, of course, uh, that competitive pressure would go all the way down below the surface to trying to get more and better coal out of the mines and out of the miners. And, of course, uh, in economic downturns, uh, you'd have uh, 
layoffs and mine closures. Uh, uh, we run across this, uh, 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 of course, you know, throughout in, uh, all industrial history, the whole history of capitalism. And of course, all these could lead to conflict in the workplace. And of course, at the same time, as these different ethnic groups uh, interacted on the streets, they were almost like mm-hmm. boom towns in many of the places, or the coal patch towns, as they call right, them, and just, right. just a patch of uh, a few houses. There were even uh, miners who uh, went to work by um, uh, by a kind of commuter train because the railroad had to uh, oh, no bring kidding. the coal in and out. And there were, I actually have a Christmas tree ornament uh, still on my <laughs> tree right now uh, that is an ornament of a miner's train. Right. And it is labeled as such because they'd put on a few... Uh, uh, cars, you know, the, these trains would be carrying coal uh, in and out of the mines, and they'd be uh, carrying miners from one town to another on these trains. So you'd have the ethnic groups mixing in their communities, you'd have them mixing and working for each other in the workplace. Often the uh, Welsh and English were big mine contractors, right. and they would have numerous folks working for them, doing the, uh, what we might call the scut work or the, or the mm-hmm. basic labor, and uh, um, especially in the atmosphere of growth and economic volatility in this period, all kinds of conflict um, was going to happen, as of course it does uh, everywhere in the world of capitalism. Yeah. Um- Let's talk about some of the details of where the conflict starts, because as we were talking before, we started turning the microphones on and getting the buzzkill bunker ready. A lot of a lot of the resentment uh, from the actual miners comes from the way they were paid or not paid, or mm. how their pay was calculated. Oh, sure. How did that work? Sure. Well, the coal miners themselves were generally it's a very complex industry and a rapidly growing industry but they were generally par- paid for the car of coal that they mined and which is, which is like a, a railroad a, a, like a slightly a little, small railroad yeah, car yeah on running on uh, track and of course they'd run them on tracks but of course these were narrower gauge smaller tracks yeah, and yeah. regular you know but 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 that was how you'd move them around, and even in some places you'd have to use mules because this was before they had small locomotives and so on. But it'd be but, more than a pickup truck, less than a less than a, a semi truck full I, of coal. I each, think that yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's a good way to uh, uh, to characterize it. Uh, and so you'd fill up these cars, and uh, you were supposed to fill them with coal primarily. Uh, but there was always uh, slate and other kinds of waste. It could get into the car, or of course, there might be uh, some miners who wouldn't be so careful about what they would put in the car. Right. Uh, and it would the coal car would make its way up to the surface, where a supervisor of some sort or another would look at it and decide whether that was a good full car of coal, or. If the supervisor didn't think it was, uh, they called them docking bosses. They would dock. They would uh, take away credit for a quarter of a car or a half a car, maybe mm-hmm. even a whole car if they thought it was, uh, you know, just wasn't good. And they would make a note of that and so on. And, of course, the miner had, uh, you know, lots of reason to think that he might be cheated. I'm sure some were cheated. I'm sure many were not. But he was uh, a few hundred feet below while these decisions were being made. And then he might be informed, you know, if you if you send out a lot of bad cars, sooner or later the, the boss might say, well, I had to dock you this and I had to do that. You'd see it in your pay slip. Uh, anyway, or in the cash you got, the slip that came along with the cash, it wasn't much check payment in those days. But uh, you know, there would easily be disputes. And, and in some of the crimes for which the so-called Molly Maguires were convicted, 
they would trace the first animus between different mm-hmm. people involved in these crimes uh, because there were some mining bosses who were uh, who were murdered, you know, by somebody. Right. There was you know some dispute as exactly who did it, but they were murdered. And uh, they'd say, well, this particular miner, often an Irish miner, had had a dispute with this particular boss over how much his coal was docked. And of course, it becomes a it it's a big issue throughout the entire history of labor relations in the anthracite coal industry. The anthracite coal industry hit its peak in World War One and has declined substantially since. But yeah. uh, this was uh, this late 19th century period was getting toward the, the heyday of anthracite coal. And, it, and you can imagine miners who are getting their pay docked unfairly, they think, might be thinking that the the owners are doing it just to make to make larger profits. Oh, sure. Sure. And, and undoubtedly, that was the case with some, mm-hmm. not the case with all. But um, there were those kinds of workplace disputes. And of course, there were lots of, uh, you know, we might call them today, uh, you know, the, the equivalent, at least in the reading I've done, it looks like, you know, what you hear about gang warfare, where there would be different groups and, uh, you know, they'd come out of a bar and they didn't particularly like the other group. And usually these were ethnically based. Sometimes yeah. there were fights between different Irish groups, but often right. between Irish and Welsh, Irish and English. Um, there was one of the uh, miners, he was, uh, he was not a boss, he was a miner. A Welsh miner who was killed and the people who were convicted for it were so-called Molly Maguires and uh, Irish miners, but he was killed at a, uh, at a picnic. And he was uh, sort of tending bar at a picnic and I guess pouring beers or uh, you know whatever for, uh, for his fellow Welsh miners and um, some Irish guys came up to him and blew him away in wow. the 1870s. And so those were sort of part of the Molly Maguire crimes. The Molly Maguire crimes were viewed, of course, by the English and Welsh community and the coal supervisory community as a kind of reign of terror by largely Irish miners. There were – within the Irish community, there were many people who – denied that these crimes were even committed by mm-hmm. Irish. And of course, many people could be lined up as alibi witnesses. And of course, yep. there's been lots of question as to the veracity of different kinds of testimony and so on. Because they're but t- it tightly became, knit and often related. Oh, sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. And, 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 and it was really that kind of split. And of course, all of this and the crimes, uh, as I mentioned, ends up being such a noteworthy occurrence that not only are lots of books published on this, but we do have, uh, you know, I'm sure many uh, listeners will have run across the Sean Connery, Richard Harris movie, The Molly Maguires. 1970. Yes, yes. And that was, uh, you know, very sympathetic toward the Irish miners' point of view. And of course, brings in the way that the crimes of Molly Maguires were investigated and eventually prosecuted. Uh, Richard Harris plays this character. The man's name was, uh, was James McParland. Mm-hmm. And he was a Pinkerton detective who was undercover for a couple years with the Mollies. With well, he got, with, he got himself in. Oh yes, yes, and and of course he uh, exposed certain connections with a group that's still around, and it's a wonderful community group that does lots mm-hmm. of good work. But the Ancient Order of Hibernians and McParlin's emphasis was that in the many bars that he went to and meeting lots of tavern owners that were involved with the Hibernians, there was a kind of inner group that was often affiliated with the Hibernians that would exact vengeance for what they saw as misdeeds done 
often by English and Welsh, sometimes by mine supervisors, to Irish miners or, you know, those few Irish who did something other than mining, of the 20 executed mollies in the late 1870s, a quarter, while they, while I think they worked in the mines at some point, had become tavern keepers. All right. And, so work and their way up. In yes. Sense. Yes. And so, so in some ways, you can almost see the see them as a kind of success story. Right. I don't think their taverns were uh, too fancy. <laughs> I'm not sure the craft beer movement had gotten very far in the 1870s, uh, though I'm sure there was a lot of locally produced beer. Yeah. But still. Uh, it was not just a matter of miners with workplace disputes. There's a lot of other things going on. The ethnic dimension is especially important, but, but yeah. McParlin infiltrated them. And, but we should, we should stress to the buzzkillers that the ancient order of Hibernians was founded long before this in 1836, and mostly in Boston and, and northeastern cities as a, as a kind of Irish Catholic protection society. And I don't mean that in a, in a, in a um, mob sort of sense, but would protect Irish churches, Catholic churches that were attacked various times and, and would try to, you know, expose or cut down on, on discrimination in the workplace and things like that. But it, but it's this, it's this group that within the, the AOH, if you yes. will, that call yes. themselves the Molly Maguires that, yeah. that we're talking about. Yeah. And it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that, that the, Ancient order suddenly decided, "Hey, no. hey, we need a we need a group of no, of, no, of, no. Of, uh, radicals." No, and, and and there were elements in the groups and meetings at the group that were highly critical of whatever ties they had heard rumored yeah. with uh, crimes like this and so on. And uh, involved with all of this too was the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. uh, which and most Irish uh, uh, were uh, Catholic to one extent or another. And the Catholic Church in this period came out very strongly. And I think that's really been their traditional point of view uh, going back into uh, the strength of the Masons with various Protestant groups and conflict with uh, the Catholics there was, was that Catholics should not be part of any kind of secret society. Right. And of course, the key to so many of these crimes was, the, was this, a kind of oath of secrecy, similar to what we see in a lot of more modern uh, crime films where uh, you don't uh, snitch on someone, mm-hmm. and of course that's a... You know, common common issue in the news today about what happens to snitches. Well, in this period, the whole idea was uh, many of the Molly crimes were someone from one community would have a grievance, report it to someone he knew was involved with the Mollies, they'd meet in a tavern somewhere, and they would find someone from another community to wreak vengeance uh, in the different community so that people wouldn't know who had done the crime. Yeah. And of course, the person who had been directly aggrieved could say, I didn't do anything, though right. that person might be asked to uh, uh, to kill to or oh, beat oh, right. up someone yes. in another community, and yeah. it would go back and forth. And so uh, that kind of pattern, which is a common pattern of... Uh, criminal violence, you know, plays an important role here too. Yeah, and we should also mention that the church back in Ireland was heavily against the secret societies and also spoke out against um, agricultural and workplace violence when it happened. But what sure. what what are the various things that they did? What are the, some of the sort of specific ways in which they disrupted mining, they tried to, to, to um, uh, threaten or besides killing um, workers, do they actually try to disrupt the, the the production of coal and make the bosses pay for it? You well, know, in well, the, it, 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 in the pocket. It gets a little complex here because the people convicted of the Molly Maguire crimes 
were largely miners or almost all had some kind of experience in mining, and they were Irish. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there was the growth of a very powerful, though ultimately unsuccessful, union in the anthracite coal industry, known for most of this period as the Working Men's Benevolent Association. Uh, <clears throat> it was led for most of that period by uh, uh, an Irishman named John Siney. He was, for that period, one of the major leaders of American labor. And he was trying to organize a union that would, of course, as unions do, struggle for a better deal on wages and uh, benefits. That's why it was called a benevolent association, too, and sort of to you know provide sort of source of unity and support for uh, miners, many of whom were Irish. Uh, so, of course, the union had, not surprisingly, conflict with the Reading Railroad and other operators. The Reading Railroad didn't want that union to be successful, and it was eventually defeated in a strike uh, ending in 1875. But the Working Men's Benevolent Association, even though some of these Molly Maguire crimes were occurring you know, at the same time and a little bit after the demise of the WBA in 1875, yeah. no historian has found any links between the Working Men's Benevolent Association leadership and people who are convicted of Molly, Molly McGuire crimes, uh, certainly some people who were involved in those crimes might have been members of the union, but thousands of people were members of the union. But there's no connection to a kind of leadership role. Also, the Molly McGuire crimes were these kinds of personal uh, vendettas, shootings, beatings, and so on. There were a lot of other things going around, going on in the coal fields that were investigated. There were, you know, damage to property and so on that right. might be seen as a kind of, uh, you know, uh, labor radicalism or labor violence associated more against property as uh, than, you know, a, a Welsh miner that uh, you'd had a brawl with, right. uh, that kind of violence. But those really haven't been studied by historians because uh, my sense is that it's easier to get an audience, and uh, historians are interested <laughs> in audiences too, right? That's why Professor? we have this show. Uh, uh, by telling uh, familiar stories where the where the lines can be can be drawn uh, rather easily, and so the focus has generally been on these crimes and these convictions. There was a lot of other stuff going on there, and but. Unfortunately, what happened, uh, you know, it's really rather interesting. The, the Molly Maguire's reputation, of course, at the time that they were convicted, was very negative with the uh, even the president of the Reading Railroad uh, appearing as a prosecutor against them. And <laughs> his effort was to, and that was legal at that time. That was not Ill illegal, but he certainly did do it. It wouldn't be allowed in the court today. But there was a sense that uh, uh, the Molly Maguires were a kind of wave of disorder that must be eradicated. And what the president of the Reading Railroad did in, his, in the prosecution he worked on rather effectively was to, was to connect through innuendo the Molly Maguires with the recently defeated labor union to try to give labor organizing a bad name in general. Right. Again, uh, from the best historical evidence, at least that I've seen, those connections really aren't there. And the leaders like John Siney of the Working Men's Benevolent Association struggled to make sure there were no connections and denounced uh, some of the violence going on that uh, uh, in this area uh, that's later connected to the Molly Maguires. So Still, this, this charge stuck at yeah. that time. 
and the Molly Maguires were executed. But I'd say from about the 1930s on, different historians with, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, some, some uh, you know, with, uh, I'd say, strong labor sympathies, especially strong labor sympathies. Which was not uncommon in the oh, middle no, part of no, the 20th century. Oh, no, and it's still very common in yeah, the field, yeah, yeah, yeah. and there's yeah. nothing wrong with it. People are entitled yeah. to whatever sympathy they have. But they would take the argument that the Mollies were associated closely with the labor movement. That was seen as a bad thing by Franklin Gowan in his prosecution. Right. Um, this is the head as of the railroad. Good, yes, railroad. the head of the Reading Railroad. They would turn it around to say, well, this shows that the Mollies were incipient labor radicals. Right. And that if the uh, if they were guilty of the crimes they were convicted of, it was with people who deserved it, cruel bosses and so on. And the evidence for that, frankly, is a little sketchy, but that's how the argument has gone. And, of course, the argument was also made that they weren't really guilty or that very few of them right. were guilty uh, and that they were railroaded by a court system that, in fact, wasn't terribly sympathetic toward uh, Irish Catholics and was certainly influenced by... Uh, Wealthy people like uh, Franklin Gowan, though yeah. I mean I think there are you know problems with that argument, but that's been the one that's that's uh, that's uh, won the day, and and you can see strong elements of it in you know what is really a wonderful movie, but the, yeah. the movie The Molly Wires. Well, let's make sure the buzzkillers understand because I'm I'm going to use the phrase that I like to use uh, most often in the show, and that that there's either no evidence or very little evidence that the Molly Maguires are if you will, an official militant wing of the union. There, there, I, There's also... I've seen none. I mean, right. I, well, I'm Well, if you've, if I'm you've seen yes. none, then there is. Yes. <laughs> and there's also no evidence that the, the Molly Maguires are, if you will, a militant wing of the ancient order of Hibernians. Now, that connection may be a little bit closer because they seem to be a subgroup within, but it's not as if the president of the local AO, AOH says to the says, oh, no, you guys go off and do this other stuff yeah. while we run yeah. the community I mean, bank. Yes, there was, there was no in, – in both of these cases, there was no official sanction for what became the Molly Maguire crimes. Right. But not only no official sanction, yeah. there, there is, from what you can tell, no evidence that, that – or very little evidence that these, these, these were the same groups in, in the same way that uh, – Sinn Fein is the uh, mm. is the political what was the political wing of the IRA in in Ireland for many many years and everybody knew that and it was yeah. it was wasn't no no I know I mean there's more distance and certainly right. um, while there were people who had roles within the local ancient order of Hibernians that were involved yeah. in some of these crimes uh, they kept that militantly separate right. and very secret. Um, for their own protection, most also. Yes, yes, be- and of course the the national organization. Yeah. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, would give no support to that. So I think I think those that's a good comparison. It's an analogous uh, situation. Yeah. Okay. So what then? Oh, we could just do a brief sort of run through of of what what happens through the eighteen sixties and eighteen seventies because mm-hmm. there are a lot of killings, there are a lot of trials. Mm-hmm. And it seems to keep building up and building up. And I'm going to make this possible connection, but it may not be valid at all. That you know, when I see 1877 in in American history, I think both of of what the, the end of Reconstruction, but also mm-hmm. sure. the big 
Wall Street crash or the or the or the, the well, financial panic well, of eighteen seventy seven. The financial panic started in eighteen seventy three. It was still okay. going strong in eighteen seventy seven. So course, it's a rough. Of course, it, in eighteen seventy seven, throughout Pennsylvania, but most notably in Pittsburgh, there was the railroad strike of that year, mm-hmm. and of course in some other other parts, uh, you know, Baltimore, uh, all the way out to St. Louis and Chicago. Yeah. Uh, really, the first multi-state strike, national strike Ah. in American history. Now, that had no connection with the Molly Maguire, so there were mines and railroads that were struck in the anthracite region in Mm -hmm. 1877. This is a couple years after the anthracite Working Men's Benevolent Association had been defeated in the strike of 1875, and it really didn't come back after that. But in 1877, in the National Railroad Strike, um, in the city of uh, of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, there was um, um, uh, the state militia uh, summoned by the Pennsylvania Railroad, which is the most powerful corporation in the nation at that time. The Pennsylvania Railroad summoned the state militia to Pittsburgh to try to clear the tracks from crowds and get its uh, trains running again. The state militia uh, from Philadelphia brought in from Philadelphia, and that made uh, Pittsburghers uh, angry, at least some of them, as they were having uh, rocks and bottles and maybe a few uh, bullets uh, Mm -hmm. tossed at them in different ways. They fired into the crowd, killing uh, 10 at that time. A few more died and so on. And then the crowd descended on the property of the Pennsylvania Railroad in what's today uh, downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and destroyed several million dollars of property, pushing cars of oil and coal that were there for the strike. You know, they had stopped moving. They would light those cars and push them down the grade into <gasps> the uh, the property. It's it's not too far from the Pittsburgh Railroad Station. If any of your listeners have taken a train through Pittsburgh, and there aren't too many, I believe, <laughs> but it was around that area that the much bigger complex at that time, the Pennsylvania Railroad, was pretty much burned to the ground. The county of Allegheny had to pay a settlement of several million dollars through a bond issue uh, for that kind of destruction because the county was judged responsible for failing to keep order. Mm-hmm. So the the important point is that this was a very volatile industrial time. Yes, that's what uh, I was going to Part ask. of the reason why the Working Men's Benevolent Association lost the strike was that the economy had been declining since 1873. So they could, they held out for almost six months, but that failed. And you know, certainly some of the people involved in Molly Maguire crimes, uh, uh, I don't think we really have the research to know what their direct economic situation was. Some, as I mentioned, were tavern owners, but I'm sure mm-hmm. there were some hangers-on who were, you know, had been laid off the mines, uh, didn't have much to do, got involved with uh, a crowd doing questionable things, uh, disliked um, um, the more powerful ethnic groups and different people in the mines, maybe had been mistreated, and uh, got involved in those kind of crimes. So we can connect all of this. Well, but but I, I wonder, and this really is speculation on my part, whether, whether we can connect the rate at which the Molly Maguires are convicted and hanged in the 1870s has to do m- might have been enhanced by some sort of national tension over these big things going on you know that that the that the oh. economy is suffering and, oh, and sure. we have these guys sure. who are convicted of killing I, respectable in theory respectable there, there was and all there them. was a a real passion for order 
Uh, I think whenever there is, and we can, we can if, you know, if, if you wouldn't mind a, a current day analogy, uh, our concern over the possibility of terrorism uh, mm-hmm. tends to um, lead to all kinds of claims for uh, making things orderly and uh, setting up uh, you know, strong penalties and limiting uh, a nation's borders and all of that. That's not our concern today, but no. I think there's a similar uh, uh, on Professor Buzzkill. It's not our concern, but uh, what you find is a kind of similar passion for order that as the economy is going down, as the competition among different uh, coal mines and railroad companies is becoming more intense, as the competition, and we have to think of it that way, between different uh, mine workers for just trying to get employment becomes more intense, all from people who um, may have only arrived uh, in the country five years ago, uh, one year ago, 10 years Mm -hmm. ago, struggling to make a life in a new world, uh, the situation is very disorderly. I think we can look at the uh, anthracite region in general at that time as a kind of uh, collection of boom towns. And we always know mm-hmm. that uh, all kinds of boom towns, there's a lot of disorder when things are going good. That disorder tends to increase when right. things start going bad. So the Molly Maguire trials were were justified. There was this sense that we have to, you know, sort of clean this up, end all of this violence. And they even started looking back to, you know, crimes that had been committed over issues tied to the Civil War. Oh wow! Uh, there were there was a lot of resistance to the Civil War draft. We all, of course, yes. have to look at the Civil War as what a wonderful, positive thing, and it ended slavery and so on. But uh, there was a great deal of controversy at the time. Uh, many uh, many Irish workers uh, weren't very sympathetic toward the Union and certainly weren't eager to fight for it. Right. So there were protests against the draft in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the anthracite region, just like there was a big riot in New York City in 1863 that destroyed a good portion of uh, New York, uh, millions of dollars of damage in those riots. In the anthracite region, there was um, uh, there was one very uh, well-known crime that occurred where a mine boss got mad at some Irish miners whom he accused of having spat on the flag. And in the midst of some draft organizing and so on, right? And uh, there was uh, there was a fight, and words were exchanged. And um, I think it was fourteen years later, <laughs> the indictment came down, and a man named John Kehoe, who was uh, a tavern owner, and McParlin uh, labeled him as an associate, you know, with lots of these different crimes that had gone on. He had already been put into jail on conspiracy. McParlin, was, again, was that was the, detective yes, working was the detective. That's right. That's right. Uh, he fingered Jack Kehoe as having, you know, you know, given evidence that he had killed this mine owner back uh, 14 years before. And that was the crime for which uh, Kehoe was executed. And of course, about 100 years later, uh, there was a movement that was successful to have him pardoned. You can look on different websites mm. and find uh, Governor Milton Schapp in 1979, his document pardoning uh, Jack Kehoe for the crime he was convicted of on Detective McParlin's evidence hundred years before. Right. And not only that, 10 years before that, he'd been played by Sean Connery in the movie. That, so you yes, can't get yes, much better than the, that yes. for a posthumous reputation. McParlin, yeah, McParlin was played, played by by, uh, by Richard Harris. And yeah, it's, so uh, it, two big uh, stars of the time. Yeah. yeah. And of course, even the uh, uh, the man who wrote the screenplay, you know, a very talented uh, uh, 
a screenwriter in Hollywood, Walter Bernstein, uh, mm-hmm. had had uh, lots of problems with blacklisting in the blacklisting, eight, in the yeah. in the nineteen fifties, and so. Uh, all kinds of these, you know, these these issues of class consciousness and social change have always been around the edges of the Molly Maguire violence, turmoil, and crimes. But I think there's a danger, and to be honest, I think some historians have have made the mistake of conflating those too closely and making the people convicted of the Molly Maguire crimes class conscious radicals in ways that. I, you know, just just aren't rad, uh, just aren't accurate. There was radicalism at that time. There was the beginnings of class consciousness. There was all kinds of turmoil with mine owners. But just because it happened at the same time as the Molly Maguire crimes doesn't mean uh, doesn't set it up for a line of cause and effect. Okay, so what seems to be to me to be happening here are a number of things that really you know lead into all these the the big idea of the show the mis misinterpretations. Uh, other questions about his historical events we we should consider, especially when they've been so sort of um, um, skewed in many ways. And the first thing, the thing that seems to come up again and again and again in what you're saying is just because certain things happen at the same time or there are certain groups around at the same time does not doesn't necessarily mean that there's a cause and effect. Oh right. sure, sure, sure. And this, of course, is always the the historian's task. It can be the storyteller's task. It's our task in everyday life. But um, uh, what's I think the phrase is correlation. Uh, things uh, right. happening around the same time is not necessarily causation, and we have to we have to figure that out. And uh, uh, there's always the temptation to look for broader and grander causes. Mm-hmm. They may be part of it. They may not, and I think the whole uh, story of the Molly Maguires, which now has, uh, oh, about 140 years on it, it was very controversial at the time, it's been written out constantly since, uh, illustrates uh, this uh, quandary in a great many ways. Yeah, because if if we're arguing that the crimes, the Molly Maguire crimes themselves, the specific crimes, had no direct connection with unions and unionization— Although they happened at the same time, yeah. and although many of the Molly Maguire's might have been members of the of the sure. union, sure. doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's part of a unionization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or movement. that they were the uh, the radical wing of the mm-hmm. uh, Working Men's Benevolent Association, uh, or for that matter, the uh, radical win- wing of the Ancient Order of Hibernians. Uh, uh, even though you know all these different groups come into play, but when we focus on the crimes. Uh, especially when uh, people are getting killed and uh, mm-hmm. punishments are being handed out, I think we have to be careful about what that expresses. I mean, uh, we've had you know, all kinds of issues about the role of the police and the role of the justice system in current day America I mean, yeah. and all of these things, especially when we're dealing with crime and punishment. We have to be very, very careful, both the authorities and uh, uh, citizens uh, watching over them. But same's the case in history. Yeah, and because... And- for exactly the same reason, the crimes that were committed were against people, uh, you know, who had families, and then they were killed, and they were and people were widowed, and children were orphaned. Oh, oh, sure. And however bad that mine manager might have been, or whatever, no. it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a sort of um, uh, class consciousness building up against 
No. The well, mine owners well, did, could... Well, I think the danger is always that, well, and this isn't any decision we make, but we sort of bring our own set of attitudes mm-hmm. to it. And if we're actually evaluating things carefully, we have to try to get ourselves away from those attitudes as we can, wherever they happen to be on the political spectrum. I think of uh, one of the victims of Molly Maguire's uh, Molly Maguire crimes was uh, uh, a policeman named Benjamin Yost. Yost was uh, of German descent. He was one of the two-man police force in the town of Tamaqua in northeastern Pennsylvania. Well, we could call uh, Benjamin Yost a uh, representative of the forces of order. Uh, we could al- also call him uh, just a policeman trying to get through the day. He was killed while uh, lighting the gas lamps in the yeah. town of Tamaqua. I'm sure people love the gas lamps. That was a pretty mm. recent innovation. And I think we do have to, you know, especially in dealing with crime and punishment, focus on the evidence that's there. And there is a great deal of evidence. And sure, we have to look. Uh, with some, with a critical eye at the reports of uh, Detective McParlin, even though he filed uh, uh, frequent w- reports shortly after the meetings that he said he saw, as well as testifying about them years later, but and testifying uh, about them consistently as yeah, well. Yeah, and and you know, if our interest is the union, let's focus on the union. Yeah. If our interest is. Uh, Uh, And historians have failed here. Professional historians have failed, I would say. Uh, If our interest is crimes against property, let's focus on crimes against property. Uh, The Molly Maguires has had a great deal of of interest and a great deal of study. But a lot of these other topics that that have become allied to it, and some people have almost sort of gathered them all together, uh, like the fate of the union mm-hmm. and the growth of the industry have received less attention because the story of the Molly Maguires is such a great story from all kinds of different perspectives. That's right. Buzzkillers, as we always say, it's always more complex, more compelling, and more controversial than is usually given in the Hollywood version of, of history and lots of other versions of history. So thank you very much, Dr. Blatz. This has thank been a you. most illuminating conversation. It's been especially helpful for the buzzkillers out there because we talk so much about the nature of evidence and what can be done with evidence in, in good and bad ways and how that can change our thinking later on. So it's audios for me, buzzkillers, and we'll talk to you next week. 